0: Hello and welcome to the FD Advisor podcast. The COP26 summit ended last Sunday, and there were mixed feelings around whether or not it could have been called a success. The aim of the conference was to reach a consensus on actions to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and to secure net zero emissions by 2050. The summit saw 197 countries agree to new rules on limiting greenhouse gas emissions, but last minute objections by India and China watered down proposals to end coal use. So what impact has this summit had on the wealth management industry, if any? And what can investors and advisors do to ensure they play their part in combating climate change? I'm Sally Hickey, a senior reporter, and with us this week are Yohan Murray, head of investment at Federated Hermes, and Rob Harley, a portfolio manager in the Sustainable Funds Group of Stewart Investors. Thank you both for joining us. First of all, to Yohan, the big question: What impact, if any, has COP26 had on ESG investing?
1: So, Sally, big the big question, and I think I would start by saying. Uh, COP26 will probably go down in history as yeah not quite a triumph but equally not a disaster so maybe that equals uh, qualified success and I I think there were some really good things that we'll take from it and then equally there'll, there'll be some big disappointments and in, into that latter category I would probably put uh, the, the failure to um, to to deliver on the commitments made in terms of financing climate uh, change in the developing nations uh, which obviously we know with the, the German-Canadian uh, 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 compromise has now been booted back to 2023 and five years later there still is nothing that will replace the, the five year of $100 billion so that, that's a problem I think more broadly there were some really interesting commitments around uh, $130 trillion of assets um, now private capital committed to uh, aligning activity with global climate goals, and that's about 40% of uh, overall capital. So I think that's a big positive step. Um, The the devil, of course, with all of these things, and so many of the things that come out of of COP is in the detail. Uh, so So much of it is promissory, and that always makes me a little bit nervous. I would say, the other thing that we need to bear in mind is we are never going to solve this on our own as investors or an investment industry. It always had to be part of a bigger package. And I think there are still some significant elements missing from the bigger package in terms of regulation, policy, et cetera. Although, again, number of improvements in a couple of areas will have got us a little bit further down the path.
0: Great. And Rob, the same question to you.
2: Thanks, Sally. Um, I think it's probably had very little direct impact. Uh, You know, the COPs, it's a process of political negotiation between nation states whose main interest is how little they can get away with offering each other, not how much so the cops unlikely to ever be a change dynamo not for investment or anything else but whatever you know whatever ones views are about the influence of the cop i think there's a much bigger more important and much more meaningful process of change that's happening it's patchy it's uneven and it's messy um it's happening not in the international political superstructure, super but it's happening on the ground at the subnational level, states and in provinces, in cities. It's happening in communities and across civil society. And it's happening in economies and in companies and markets and in our area of, of interest, which is, is investment. And what's happening is that a growing number of people, a groundswell really, are now convinced that the economic model that we followed for centuries just isn't going to serve us well in the future. So I think people understand that the challenge of decarbonizing economies and reducing exposure to uh, to fossil fuels and and also reducing consumption in general is just going to grow. And the companies most likely to succeed will be the companies that rise to, to this particular challenge and to the many other sustainable development challenges that we face. Capital tends to flow towards companies that are likely to be successful, and this is what drives investment. So our view is that the the direction of travel towards decarbonization is clear and it's unstoppable. Um, And so are the signposts to to success, both for, for companies and investors. And that's even if we're still left trying to answer the big, the pace of travel, as Owen implied.
0: And and that brings me quite nicely onto my next question for you, Rob, is your thoughts on the kind of the argument for divestment or activism when, when trying to have an impact through investing and just in layman's terms, this is whether investors choose not to invest in a climate climate harming company or whether they choose to use their investment to almost lobby the company to change what are your views on that rob
2: divestment versus activism is is an interesting dichotomy um i think it presupposed in problematic companies yeah, that's your starting point you know we we launched our first sustainability fund at student investors in 2005 and we did it because Um, we believe that sustainable development would be a driver of investment performance. So we've spent the last 15-plus years investing our clients' money exclusively in high-quality companies that we think are well-positioned to contribute to and to benefit benefit from sustainable development. And so these companies aren't candidates for divestment. If anything, we think they deserve more investment. Um, You know, but I, I want to also enter into the spirit of of your question um, about activism versus divestment. I I don't think the answer is uniform or clear cut. I think it depends on the specific company, uh, on its history and and track record. Um, I think it depends on how entrenched it is in doing certain profitable things that cause us difficulty. it depends on how ambitious and visionary its leaders are about making change, and how tolerant and patient its shareholders are about the process of change. You know, these are just some of the many considerations that have to. An interesting case study is is the Danish company Ørsted, which is the world's largest developer of, of of offshore wind power, but only a decade ago it was. 100% a fossil fuel company. Right now, 7% of all the power it produces still come from fossil fuels, but it's on track to be an entirely green energy company by 2023. We, we only invested in Orsted quite recently, um, I think about five or six months ago. You know, should, should we have been more positive earlier or should we have waited till it was 100% green energy I, I don't know if there's a right answer. Um, the, the change at Allstead's been incredible, but it's also quite unusual. And I, I think one needs to be careful about investing in companies that still have to pull off very big and difficult transformations. And you really have to be able to trust the leadership um, to pull off these transformations, because the last thing you want to end up is, with is your client's money you know, trapped and stranded assets, or or redundant lines of business.
0: Yeah, and and yeah, and you're you're nodding away there. Can I bring you in here?
1: I'm, I'm loving I'm loving it. I'm furiously agreeing with uh, with Rob, and and maybe just to you know yeah build even further on some of the things that he said. I think it's worth thinking about this question in terms of uh, the the bigger context of what we need to do. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll summarise that in two ways. One, you know. emissions reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. And as Rob said, that really means this is a whole uh, sort of big global economic systems problem. And one of the questions that I sort of frequently ask myself is, uh, are are we in fact out of time to wholesale uh, change the manner in which we do things? Uh, Even reflecting as far as saying, is capitalism uh, a a part of the answer or it's uh, it's the it's the system that got us here. Is it also capable of getting us out of it? Uh, The timeframes actually, I think, are so short, eight years to 2030, 28 to 2050, that. i think it behooves us to find ways to work with what we've got today and rob is absolutely bang on to say you almost need to go company by company and maybe even activity by activity to say is this uh, activity capable of change in a sensible way to meet the goals that we need Um, if it is then i think as an investor one should engage and encourage that company to make that change Uh, of course there will be some activities that simply aren't. and then I think you can make a, a case for divestment and/ or exclusion. But even that's problematic. and we've seen this uh, with a number of announced exclusions policies that uh, that come out where people uh, or investors choose kind of rather arbitrary numbers for, you know if uh, if activity X is less than twenty five percent of a company's overall activity, then that's okay. And, you know, guess what? Activity X usually is a number which doesn't preclude very much at all. Uh, It's a kind of an unsubtle form of greenwashing. And I, I wish people wouldn't do it. It's
0: so interesting, isn't it? Because it's on on the one hand, uh, we need a fundamental change in ev- in almost everything we do, and yet it, you have to go so deep into the nitty gritty of every, as you say each individual company to really understand the nuance of what they're saying. Yeah. And I guess for in- investors, the, the big issue is they don't have the time nor the expertise to to do that research, so they're kind of relying on advisors or DFMs to do it for them. And I guess my next question, Yon, know, for you, is how much of a part regulation should play. This and and you know we have have had updates of the the labeling system the FCA is going to introduce. What are your thoughts on on if we can have appropriate regulation and and, and when and, and whether you think that will that will happen soon and if it needs to come come faster?
1: So Sally, I would always sort of be um, sitting on the side of less regulation is better, but in the event of market failure, you need regulation and. I think we need to be honest and say that's that's where we're at now. So some form of regulation is, is going to be necessary. And it, it must be seen again in this overall global systems context. Um, I think the recent uh, announcements are from the FCA around the scope and direction of their regulations uh, look good. And maybe even uh, I might go so far as to suggest uh, a modest improvement on what we saw from the EU. Uh, both in terms of categorization and, and indeed in terms of a taxonomy. Um, and I think the most significant uh, piece that I've taken from from what I've seen so far is that in the FCA proposal, there appears to be a greater role for stewardship and active engagement uh, than there is in uh, the, the EU version. So I'm taking that as a, as a very positive thing uh, so far. Now, we know... Uh, we've already seen what happens with uh, when when certain uh, companies face the the potential of being excluded they start to sell off assets we've seen it in the middle east uh, oil fields being gas fields being sold either back to uh, national governments or to private investors and there's a fear in my mind that we'll be creating a kind of a, a tobacco industry effect where the tobacco industry was Uh, Able to continue for a number of years without real change, um, and generating very nice returns for those investors that uh, had uh, sufficiently few scruples to continue investing there. So regulation has to form part of the solution, and yeah, welcome uh, these first steps. Sure,
0: and and Rob, the same question to you on your thoughts of of the regulation you've seen and the regulation you want.
2: Very similar perspectives to Jon, I think. Um, it's probably helpful to, to flip this, this question around. Um, you know, the, the, the question you pose is sort of, is, is more regulation needed? Um, I think, as, as Jon said, we all need to do more um, and we all need to do better to, to help investors understand what they're investing in. That's the goal. Um, is the solution to have more regulation on on disclosure? Um, maybe, uh, but it needs to be good regulation that encourages good disclosure. You know we need to be we need to provide better and more meaningful information, not just more data. You know, in, the, in the same way that complex tax reporting requirements benefit accountants and lawyers, I think simply requiring heaps of ESG metrics will probably only benefit ESG data providers um, and and not the consumers that we're worried about here so to provide clients with um, with with better and more meaningful information you know we have to understand better where clients are starting from and what they need and how best we can provide what they need and of course all clients are different and their requirements won't be the same so we need to come up with with frameworks that balance the need for some standardization with enough flexibility to present and communicate information meaningfully um, and a little bit uniquely if, if necessary. So I think this all sounds like a job that shouldn't just be left to the regulators. You know, as you've as said, we all need to play our part. Regulators, asset owners, investment managers, financial advisors, everyone in the value chain needs to play their part.
0: And Rob, do you think that ESG investors are perhaps too focused on carbon emissions specifically and do do they need to widen their scope to for instance methane emissions, soil erosion, deforestation? Do you think there's too much of a focused gaze at the moment?
2: Yeah, I think we can answer this question probably at, at two levels. One is about the environmental challenge, and one's about the broader sustainable development challenge. So, to the first point, we think it's a it's a mistake to focus myopically on carbon emissions instead of taking a broad view of the bigger envi- environmental challenge that we face, which is really to to maintain healthy ecosystems and to use land and water. And all other vital natural resources sustainably, because we're currently using up natural resources 50% faster than, than nature can regenerate. Um, we 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 also think that just focusing on the environmental challenge, is counterproductive, to the whole idea of sustainable development. And and this is the second point I'd like to make. Um, you know, if we think of sustainable development quite simply as economic and human development that meets present needs and future needs, but without depleting the planet's environmental resources, it, it means that investing for sustainable development requires us to understand that there's a, there's a living web of connections and interdependencies between people and ecosystems so we need, to, we need to understand the relationships between economic and human development and natural resource use. So by way of example, just a, a simple chain of links, um, let's imagine that we're trying to tackle the problem of poverty in, in a country in the global south. So poverty eradication is linked to food security, is linked to climate change mitigation, is linked to sustainable land and water use, is linked to education, is linked to women's empowerment, is linked to access to healthcare, is linked to income generation, and on and on and on. Um, So, you know, of course our investment choices, and Yon made this point earlier, our investment choices on their own aren't going to solve all these connected challenges, um, but they can play a part in helping make the links between different aspects of sustainable development stronger and more productive.
0: And yeah, and what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, again, furiously agreeing with uh, with Rob. This is going to be a really dull podcast for your <laughs> listeners. Yeah, if only learning. you would
0: have different. You know, if you could have a bit of a fight, that would be great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but just to, uh, I, I would bring in. There are two global frameworks that immediately spring to mind, and the first is this concept of planetary boundaries. Uh, two thousand and nine, the Stockholm Institute brought them out, and at the time, uh, one of the leading scientists involved a uh, chap called Johan Rockström. Um, There's a wonderful TED podcast that you can still find on YouTube, in in which he says, uh, by the way, everyone, solving for climate change is the easy problem. (laughs) Much more difficult were all of these other things. And I think that is absolutely, uh, absolutely bang on. The other framework, uh, and I think this is... that sort of alludes to uh, what Rob was saying as well, is the the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They provide a really good signpost and and guiding tool for for all the things that we need to do and get right. Uh, And that's also us as investors. So we we spent a a while looking at the, the 17 goals, the... 169 underlying targets and so on and of those 169 underlying targets we think maybe 42 43 are actually investable but that's a good number and we can really be working hard towards it. so that's very very positive positive. and you're absolutely right there are there, there are other issues out there methane being the classic uh, 84 times more warming than uh, co2 over over a 20-year period uh, and lasts considerably uh, uh, less time in the atmosphere uh, than c o two. Deforestation, again, something that was picked up at cop, nineteen billion dollars of public and private finance pledged to help uh, stop deforestation, uh, and including Brazil. And very, very sad to hear that the Amazon probably these days is no longer a carbon sink uh, due to the activity that's going on there. Uh, that's quite a quite a blow for the world. The other piece that we haven't mentioned, probably should, is, if you like, the the flip side of the, the coin, which is the social piece, uh, the S of ESG. And just to say, look, the, we know that this is going to come at a cost to some in some areas, and whatever we do, we need to try and make this a just transition in which we bring everyone along. Uh, the risks of not doing so probably mean that uh, about a third of the world's population projected by 2030, which I think will be about 3 uh, billion people, uh, would, would be potentially living in land that is no long, longer inhabitable. Well, they're going to move. Uh, now, if everyone needs an incentive to do something, uh, you're, imagine you suddenly had another uh, 33% of, of the population here in the UK needing space. The mind boggles.
0: Yeah, definitely. I didn't think houses in London could get any smaller, but they might well do in the future.
1: <laughs> they can get more expensive, Sally. That's the bad
0: thing. Oh, I'm well aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so on to our final question. With all of this information around and everything that we need to do, um, can the wealth management industry really have a tangible impact on climate change? And uh, Rob, I'll come to you first on that.
2: Oh, I mean, of course it can. Uh, you know, unless we believe this, we may as well give up and go to the beach. Um, you know, it, it's, this isn't a sentimental argument. Um, it's a cold fact. We, we know this because for centuries and over the last century in particular, the investment industry has undoubtedly contributed to the process of climate change. Um, so we we have the ability and we have the responsibility to do the opposite to be a force for good and all of us who work in this industry have an extremely powerful tool at our at at our disposal which is is asset allocation if if we use that power responsibly you know, I'm sure we will have a much more powerful impact than every COP agreement, past, present and future.
0: And yeah, and I can imagine you'd you'd agree.
1: I certainly would, Sally, 100%. But as always, we will do our part um, as one component of this overall system. Um, and and we absolutely must. We we have no choice. We can do so as investors. And then, of course, let's not forget we're also individuals, so we uh, are in terms of being uh, voters and taxpayers. So we can do our part individually to help uh, other parts of the system as well.
0: Great. fab. Well, thank you so much, Aaron and Rob, for all your thoughts, and uh, thank you at home for listening. And um, we'll be back next week.